I remember just walking in a daze to the ICU and then one of the nurses just looking at me in the eye and saying that you got to wake up because I was clearly not there. She said, you got to wake up, you know, you got to, you got to be present for your family. And that was when I kind of clicked and realised that this was actually reality and it was actually happening. Having a baby is meant to be the most joyful time of your life. But for many mums and dads, it can be the hardest and at times the darkest of places. Welcome to Blue Mondays, the podcast for anyone struggling with parenting. Today's guest is Elliot Ray. Elliot is the founder of Music Football Fatherhood, the parenting platform for men, which is all about open conversations around fatherhood. MFF was described as the dad's version of Mum's Net by the BBC. It aims to provide a space for dads to share the ups and downs of parenting and promote a positive representation of diverse fatherhood. This is done through their popular blog, a hashtag Daddy Debates podcast and community events, including monthly peer sessions for new dads called The Lodge. Elliot founded MFF after suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder after the traumatic birth of his daughter. Elliot's one of the UK's most prominent speakers and writers on topics around fatherhood, masculinity, mental health, equal parenting, and gender equality. He has held senior DNI leadership roles, and the United Nations recognised Elliot's work, and he's now the proud recipient of the UN Women UK's hashtag He for She Changemaker of the Year Award. And on 1st of June, Elliot's first book, entitled Dad, Untold Stories of Fatherhood, Love, Mental Health and Masculinity, was published a deeply moving and inspiring collection of 20 stories that represents the diversity of modern fatherhood and seeks to start a conversation that challenges the traditions associated with masculinity. It's subsequently become an Amazon top 10 bestseller. So welcome Elliot to Blue Mum Days. That's one heck of a bio. How are you today? Thank you. Thank you, Vicky. And just as you were talking and giving your introduction, it was really moving. Yeah, well done on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to, to the conversation. Oh, thank you. And thank you so much for giving us your, your time because there's so much stigma surrounding postnatal illness and PND in women, but actually postnatal illness for fathers. I mean, some people don't even think that dads can be affected with postnatal illness, but that's not the case, is it? Yeah, you're right. A lot of people don't think it's a thing. They associate postnatal illness with mums. And I understand why, to be honest, because there hasn't been a lot of media coverage, but also a lot of kind of awareness as well through some of our um, health services in the NHS. So it's not a surprise that up until very, very recently, this conversation hasn't been in the mainstream when it comes to postnatal illnesses for dads. It's only really been, I would say, in the last couple of years or so that it's a mainstream conversation that's being had now. Yeah, and it's, it's a mainstream conversation that's being had because of people like you coming forward and, and talking very honestly. And I can imagine imagine there was a lot of vulnerability to doing that at the time because those conversations weren't being had with with people yeah It'd be lovely to tell us a little bit about yourself before you became a dad what made Elliot tick back then <laughs> so probably a clue in the title <laughs> of the platform that I started music football fatherhood yeah I guess my my three passions really so I've been a musician for years and I met my wife we were in a band together she's an amazing singer and songwriter and I, I was the bass player and, you know, we, we just loved going on tour and gigging and making music together. Funny enough, for a long time, we kind of kept our relationship quite private. So a lot of people didn't know. And then when they, when they found out we got married, they were so surprised because I'm thinking, we didn't even know you together and now you're married. Like, what's going on? So, um, yeah, music is, a, is, I would say, my first love. When I was younger, I loved 
you know, dancing to Michael Jackson, grew up around a lot of soca and reggae in the house and lovers rock. So that's my first, first passion. And I guess I was becoming a teenager. Football was a, and still is a massive part of my life as well. You know, playing football, watching football. That's the main way I guess I relax now, watching match of the day or on a, on a Sunday, watching Sky Sports and enjoying a good match. So yeah, I think for me, uh, in, in, in terms of hobby wise, it was those two things. Professionally, I've always been in diversity inclusion. So working in the civil service for many years, doing DNI work. And previous to that, working with young people. So when I was in my early 20s, I had an organization called Make It Happen Music, where we would work with young people. Part of it was teaching them music production, but the actual aim was to engage them and talk to them about some of the things that they find difficult. So now I see the work I do now as kind of just a culmination of all that, really, and it's kind of a natural progression. Funnily enough, I'm a bass player as well, so I have to... Oh, really? I, yeah, before before I had Stanley, I was in an all-girl rock band, and oh, we, we had two bass players, me and one, one other girl, so I have to ask you, low-slung bass or high-up bass? Low. <laughs> Good, because th- this, you know, this conversation might have had to finish there if you, if you, if you were... Because <laughs> I'm very, very particular about my bass playing, so I'm sure, I'm sure you were a much yeah. better bass player than I ever was mine now. I'm not sure now to be honest <laughs> but it's the best instrument in a band because you can just sit back and just observe everything but you're yeah. the key so you keep it all together but you can just just look on it's great I love it was it just your, yourself and your wife in the band or was it a bigger uh, there were four of us actually and it was funny because we had a whatsapp group and a train he was our guitarist he put in the group early 2015 and he was like oh you know guys i'm not gonna be around much because you know my wife's having a baby and then 10 minutes later our drummer buki his name his name is he also put in the group he's like oh i didn't tell you but i'm having a baby in a few months as well and oh my, my wife was pregnant my wife was pregnant at the same time <laughs> so we were like we're having a baby too and so we all had babies within four months of each other <laughs> yeah. so how, how were you and your wife sort of feeling about the pregnancy was it something that you'd planned for yeah we planned for it we were ready you know I, I felt definitely ready to be a, a dad and um it was just a natural progression you know we'd been going out for a while we, we were married we moved in together and it felt like something was missing you know you're you, you know when you know you're ready to be a parent so for us it was very natural conceived straight away and we were happy I guess I mean we had a little bit we were renting at the time and we found out that our landlord wasn't paying the rent hang on that's that's quite a fundamental thing (laughs) yeah well the the landlord wasn't paying their mortgage even though we were paying the landlord our rent so we were like what are you doing with our money (laughs) so we had to we had to find somewhere else to live when my wife was four months pregnant so that was a bit annoying but other than that the whole the whole um, pregnancy was pretty smooth a smoothish, I guess, as pregnancies go. There was no kind of, you know, abnormal problems or anything like that. So, so it was, it was all good. You know, the difficulties started later on. You know, towards the end of the pregnancy and towards the birth. Yeah, is that when they uh, that identified that there may be a problem with the baby? Yes, yeah, so that's when we got a letter through the post. And, you know, I, I talk about this quite a lot because the letter was just like a pamphlet. Like it literally, like there was a new takeaway opening. It, it came across like that. But it was a letter saying that you have, my wife has something called group B strep, which is a very common infection. I think 25% of pregnant women will, will have group B strep, but it's it's uh, very rare that it's kind of passed on to the baby. And if it is passed on, then, then uh, it's very rare that 
that it will be passed on to the baby. But if it does get passed on to the baby, then it can be quite serious. And yeah, it's something I've never heard of. Yeah, which is unbelievable, which is so bad. In a lot of other countries, they test routinely. In America, they test routinely for GBS, group B strep, for all pregnant women. But over here, we don't do that. So you can go private and get like an 11 pound test. Yeah. And then you can determine whether you have it or not. But it's, re- it's really bad. It's really bad that it's not. Just a quarter of the population of pregnant yeah. women are potentially carrying it and might not know or have the information about what, what it could mean if if it's passed on to the baby. So how, how did you both feel when you got a letter like that? Stressed, to be honest, very worried. Um, you know, like you didn't know what GBS was. And as you do, you go on Google. Oh yeah, that's the worst. <laughs> you go on yeah, you just find out all the worst stories. So yeah, very stressed out. And then we booked an appointment with the midwife and she kind of calmed us down a little bit and told us that my wife, my wife would have intravenous antibiotics during the labor and they are very effective. So we were kind of relieved and we, yeah, we, we were okay going into the labor. Actually, we were, we were, we were, we were feeling okay at that point. And so take us to the, the, the actual birth itself, because it didn't progress as you had kind of planned and hoped for as, as many births don't, you know, it's, it's something that you kind of try and get across to all mums to be is, is have your birth plan, which is your absolute ideal, but you need to be a bit flexible because it doesn't always go the way you want it to. So it's what happened with you and your wife in your circumstances. Yeah, so we had a, a plan. We did hypnobirthing. Um, <laughs> so we, we thought we, were, we knew what we were doing. And so when we got into the hospital and uh, we went into a room, which was, it wasn't on the kind of clinical labour side of things. It was a birthing room. Uh, with less equipment and there was you know less doctors around and it started off okay to be honest the room was very nice and there was a nice there was nice music playing and there was a bath and I think this is this is okay like this is quite comfortable you know don't mind this um and the the antibiotics started but then very quickly we had a heart rate scare so they my 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 wife's heart rate and blood pressure was up and down but also the babies as well so they very quickly quickly moved us into the labor ward and so we went into the labor ward and and it was still fine but um you know there was more scope to do monitoring and stuff like that but it was fine but as the hours progressed there were there were kind of more scares and so doctors would run in and it was like casualty where you're just thinking where are these doctors come from they're just waiting outside because <laughs> in one minute no one would be there and the next minute there'll be like you know 15, 10 15 people in the room so they were doing lots of tests and whatnot and, uh, you know, my wife was amazing and the hypnobirthing, I guess, did really help us because first of all, it gave me a role, but also in terms of the breathing exercises and keeping calm, like it, it did actually, you know, really help. And yeah, my wife was just amazing. And as, as a man seeing childbirth, like you, it's, it's just very hard to comprehend, you know, like a, a baby coming out. It's just, it's just crazy when you really think about it. It's, it's just mad, but, but yeah, it, it was a, it was a, you know, it was a long a long um a long birth and basically my daughter wasn't wasn't coming out so they used a one shoes to to pull her out and when she came out she was very gray she wasn't breathing but at the same time my wife was losing loads of blood as well so there was at this point you know doctors just I think there must be about 25 30 doctors in the room half were working on my daughter on a side table sucking um fluid out of her her, her throats and her airways and then another other half of the doctors were working on my wife trying to stitch her up and 
you know, concerned about the blood loss because she wasn't using loads of blood. And so at this point, you're kind of just watching on and it's, it's like the moment doesn't really belong to you. You know, it's a very kind of out of body experience where you're just observing all these things going on and ultimately, you know, relying on people that you've met a few hours ago to save your family's life. I remember kind of having a sense of like fear, but at the same time, just feeling nothing at the same time because you're in shock and you just can't believe it's happening. Like it doesn't feel real at all. It just feels like you're watching a program. You know, it doesn't feel like it's happening to you in real life. So um, the doctor said, oh, do you, are you going to come to intensive care with your daughter or are you going to stay here? So I went to intensive care and I remember just walking in a daze to the ICU and getting to the ICU. And then one of the nurses just looking at me in the eye and saying, look, you've got to wake up. Because I was clearly not there. She said, you've got to wake up. You know, you've got to, you've got to be present for your family. And that was when I kind of clicked and realized that this was actually reality and it was actually happening. <laughs> and then meeting other parents, talking to the doctors and understanding my role now, which is to be an advocate for my daughter. And I think, yeah, fatherhood started there and then. Um, so yeah, and then we spent two weeks in hospital. I mean, that first night going home on my own was very, very difficult. Leaving my daughter and wife, that was very difficult, but Lucky enough, the hospital gave us a, a room. I think it's just down to being a nice person, <laughs> being friendly. They gave us a room. So you got an upgrade. We got an upgrade. Well, it meant that I was able to stay because, you know, otherwise I'd have to go home and... And back that, and, that makes a huge difference, not not just to you in terms of going, not going back and forth and not having to leave them, but also as a support to your wife. 100%, yeah. Who's also been through something incredibly traumatic. One thing you you say very eloquently in your book, Dad, is this feeling of helplessness when this was all happening. Can you talk a little bit about about that experience? Yes, I think it's like one of the first times in my adult life where you 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 don't know what to do, but at the same time, there's not much you can do in those immediate moments in the delivery room when it's all going on. Like literally, there's nothing to there's nothing you can do really. Like nothing you can't really offer emotional support. You obviously can't <laughs> offer medical support. Um, you're just watching, you know, you're just watching. And I think that was, that, that's really difficult, you know? And yeah, it's, it's, it is really hard to kind of, to kind of make sense of that, I guess. And afterwards to think about it. And also there's the gratitude to the amazing doctors and nurses. You know, I know the NHS get a lot of stick sometimes, but I am a massive fan of those people who do that, that work under intense pressure and they save people's lives and the respect I have and the love I have for those people is amazing you know so so yeah for me helplessness I think is a big deal and after afterwards that played a part in trying to kind of understand what had happened I think I think there is something very common in, in terms of people that go through postnatal illness who feel like passengers in in the birth process I know that sort of sense was what made my birth traumatic and that I wasn't believed that I was in labour. So they induced me. And that's just my story. But it seems to be quite a common thing where you're you're utterly not listened to or you feel you have no control over the situation and you're just there sort of at the mercy of everything else. That must have been a hell of a decision to make, whether you stay with your wife or go with your brand new daughter, because they were both in vulnerable and dangerous situations so that must have been incredibly hard for you being torn like that yeah I guess it was I mean 
when I think about it, there's only one answer. <laughs> but um, I think it's just being put in that situation, which is difficult because you know, the two people that you love the most are both in trouble and serious trouble. Half of it is just a shock. You know, like if for a lot of time, a lot of things in life that are traumatic, not everything, but a lot of things in traumatic, like, you know, accidents and car accidents or whatever, where you're just not ready. You just don't think this is going to happen. You're not prepared. And it just comes as such a surprise. So I think that plays a massive part without any kind of thought process that's gone into it beforehand. You're not prepared for this at all. And yeah, that, I think that makes it quite difficult you know a lot of the work we do now is just yeah try to prepare people not to say that everyone's gonna have the same story you know most of the time it's fine but a lot of time it's not <laughs> you know we need to be more honest about that and it's a hard line because you don't want to scare people but you do need to just let them know that they should prepare for maybe not everything going to plan as you said yeah it's, it's very hard because when you have your, your baby and then you're saying to like all the parents who've been through it you're like why didn't you tell me why didn't you tell yeah. me that and they're like well it would have scared you <laughs> so so there's yeah. this like weird unwritten rule about you know I didn't even know that you bled for days weeks after having your baby that was just something that was never ever mentioned to me and you're like oh my god what's going on So obviously a really traumatic, horrible time. How did it feel when you finally got the okay to take your daughter home and come home with your family? How did that feel? Just a relief, like walking out of the hospital. Oh my gosh, that was amazing. Like literally that became our home. So um, that's (laughs) kind of what we knew was that room, that little room that we're in. Yeah, getting the news. I mean, it was hard because the two weeks we were in the hospital, it was up and down, but the doctors weren't overly concerned. They'd seen this happen before. So it wasn't like something out of the blue for them, even though for us it was completely new. But on the second to last day when my daughter developed the bump bump on the back of her head, that's when the doctors and nurses got really concerned. And we had a special specialist come from a different hospital and, you know, they were bringing us our breakfast and they were making our beds and they were kind of looking at us weird. And we knew that it was serious basically they thought it might have been a blood tumor or something so we had to go for an emergency MRI scan and that was you know by far the hardest moment in our lives hands down we just cried and prayed for hours all night basically and there was a um a midwife called Nagme who joined us she worked in the hospital and we just got to know her and she just joined us and I always think I'm sure her colleagues must have been wondering where she was because she was in our room for about three hours um (laughs) probably thought she was on an extended fag break or something (laughs) (laughs) but I think they they obviously knew what what was going on in terms of what 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 we were having to experience the next day and what was happening so maybe they put two and two together but yeah we were just in that room just praying I remember crying just crying and I was just thinking how am I just how am I still crying like where are these tears coming from like I literally couldn't believe it I never cried that in my life. I was going to say, had you cried sort of between the birth and that that no. moment in time? No. So up until then, it was... You'd held it all together. Yeah, held it all together. It was tough, but you know, we were relatively positive. And there was so much to do. There was so much to do. Like, we were in this room. Every four hours, I had to go to intensive care with my daughter. And then every other four hours, someone would come in to you know check my wife's iron levels and so and that it wasn't at the same time so it felt like every two hours <laughs> someone was bursting through the door and they wouldn't knock they'll would just burst through the door so you'll be sleeping and it's like two o'clock and you hear this bang you're like, 
what's going on <laughs> and then there's another doctor yeah very relaxing <laughs> yeah and then you go to intensive care and you come back and it's 2 30 and then we get to sleep and then four o'clock the same thing yeah so there was no time there was literally no time to be sad to be honest it was it was all go so we'd held it on and held in held it in and I felt that obviously that that responsibility as well to be, you know, the one that was healthy, to be strong. And that, it was fine. It was good. But yeah, when we got that news, I just think we we thought that by that point it, it was over. Yeah. And now we're getting introduced another massive problem, which is potentially worse than the original problem. So that was the thing where we were like, oh, yeah, this is serious. So, yeah, that night was, you know, I'd never want to relive that night ever. But then going to the MRI scan in the morning. And then an hour later or so kind of being back in our room and then the doctor kind of bursting through the door again, as they do, burst through the door. But this time it was like to give us a massive hug. And she Aww. just hugged like all of us. We just hugged and she was like, don't worry. It's just like bone structure. It's fine. And then it was just like the relief, the relief, you know. Um, and yeah, we just prayed and we just we just celebrated and, you know, called our parents and stuff like that. And then. I think we still had to stay for a couple more days just to make sure. And then we were able to go. So going home. Um, and I think, <laughs> to be honest, I say going home, we celebrated. But that's probably where, you know, for me, the, some of the, well, for both of us, me and my wife, a lot of the problems started. <clears throat> so for me, I only had um, a couple of weeks, obviously, two weeks off work, parental leave. I had a bit, a bit of annual leave. But then, you know, it was a few days at home, basically, and then back to work into a busy job. I was um, fairly senior in the civil service at the time. So going back into quite a demanding job and yeah, not really having any time or space to really process and accept what had happened and, you know, been through a massive traumatic event basically. And yeah, just kind of back to work <laughs> with, with all the pressures that come with being a new parent and having a job to balance and being sleep deprived. Yeah, my wife was diagnosed with postnatal anxiety about two months after my daughter was born. So yeah, it was a, it was a tough time. Very, very tough time that was. It's a bit like when you lose somebody close to you that the world keeps going on and you've been through this seismic experience but everybody else is like it's business as normal so I could imagine you know as a dad returning you're probably given a couple of days you know like hey how's the baby a bit sleep deprived and then it's kind of crack on now you know now you've had your time off crack on do the job we need you to do meanwhile you're holding so much you know pain and trauma inside mm. you let alone sleep deprivation and also probably a lot of concern for you for your wife so how did her anxiety manifest itself so a lot of it was just kind of extreme worry about Eleni finding it difficult to leave the house sometimes it would take us hours to leave the house so my daughter was born in October so <laughs> you know it was it was winter <laughs> and um you know in England it gets dark about four o'clock and very cold so a lot of times by the time we were ready to leave the house it was you know 8 p.m and we weren't going anywhere it was raining it was freezing so there was that there was you know we were probably in a and e i'm not exaggerating here probably about eight times in the first two months because every time my daughter had anything wrong with her we were at the a and e like temperature a cold anything anything basically just that intense worry mm. because Group B strep, it can develop later on. So there is that risk. It's very small, but there is that risk that it can, you know, manifest itself. So we were just paranoid that it was coming back. And I remember just being at the A&E and when I look back at it, you know, I'm sure the doctors were just like, oh, they're back again. <laughs> Elliot and Snenny are back. <laughs> um, but yeah, for us, it was extreme worry. 
basically. So, but yeah, I think that's how it manifested from what I experienced. I think having been through what you've been through and the massive rug pull with the need for the MRI, it's no wonder. I mean, it's hard enough when you're a new parent anyway, and you just are convinced that you're going to kill your baby instantly by smothering it or breaking its limbs when you're trying to change it, you know, for the first couple of times. Everything is so paranoid, but you must have been even more in fight and flight mode because you'd had to be, you know, you had two life threatening situations with her and also her going to ICU. That's an incredible thing to have to come to terms with. Mm. When did you feel, hang on a minute, there's something up with me? How long was it between the birth and when you felt that you you needed some help? Yes, I think it was probably straight away that I was like, like it was 2015 and it it wasn't that long ago but the mental health conversation was completely different then so dads weren't really considered at all when it comes to postnatal mental illness whatsoever but I knew probably straight away that yeah it's not good and lucky enough me and my wife you know great relationship we spoke probably just like we'll just we'll just lie in bed every night just talking about it like that's all we could talk about for the first couple months was just like we're just trying to understand, like reliving the events. Like that's all we did at night was lay in bed thinking about it and talking about it. And that's probably not healthy, but it actually helped us because at least I had Sam out there. But I, I didn't really ever kind of come to terms and, and process stuff. But a few months after, basically, my daughter had a very severe wheat allergy. And um, yeah, we gave her some wheat to bix and then her face just doubled in size, hives everywhere. The ambulance came, they rushed us, you know, flashing lights at the hospital and stuff. And I remember that day, it was in Rich Cross Hospital in, in Walthamstow, and there was, there was actually a death in A&E that day, so A&E was packed. I remember there were like, pregnant women sitting on the floor. It was just crazy. <laughs> but um, they just we just got fast-tracked, basically. And I remember people moving out of the way and everyone looking at us because A&E's face was massive. You know, like, we had to delete the pictures because it was so bad looking at the pictures. And we were so lucky that um, it didn't affect her breathing, basically. But yeah, and that was the end, basically. That was the triggering of like, okay, cool. All those things that you hadn't processed. Now you're back in this, you're back where you were before, basically. And that is what really pushed me over the edge, I guess. And that's when I really started to kind of have the flashbacks, have the insomnia, be emotional over everything. Like I'll be watching, I don't know, David Attenborough and <laughs> the Tigers have a baby. And I'm like, oh my God. I, th- I think most, most new parents can relate to that where, where everything becomes extra emotional. Yeah. Where you're just like, oh my God. Crying at X Factor at the emotional journey. You're like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> everything would just get me so, it's like, what is but then it meant the insomnia and the flashbacks were really, that's, that was really bad. That, what that meant is that basically I was just like in this state of like extreme tiredness, extreme worry. And that meant that I couldn't, like I couldn't do some basic things. Like I remember there was one day I went to work and I walked up the stairs to greet my team. And my mind was in such a fuzz and they said hello to me. I couldn't even say hello. Wow. I remember just mumbling something and then going to sit down. And in my mind, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like did they, did they see that? And it's so funny because one of my colleagues recently, at the time I didn't tell anyone, he messaged me, he's like, oh, I, I could, you know, I didn't know. He felt bad. He was like, I could see, you know, you were going through some stuff. And I was like, mate, like, it's not, you know, don't feel bad at all. You didn't do anything wrong, whatever. But, but yeah, at the time I remember thinking, um, yeah, I couldn't even say hello. And then going to meetings, there was one, one particular meeting. At that time I was working for a director general and I would kind of look, look after the senior team. And there was one meeting where there was all directors in the room and I had something I had to tell them about the risk register. 
that was really important. Like this thing was really important. It's going to have a big impact on their week. It came to the point where I had something really important to tell them. And we were going around the table. And as it was coming to me, I literally felt like I was watching myself. Like I felt like I was up here just watching everyone. So like astral projecting. Yeah. And it came to me and I just said, oh, I just mumbled like, oh, nothing. Like, and at that point I was like, oh my gosh, what is going on? Like, I'm not functioning at work. This is not cool, man. Like I actually had to agree. <laughs> I, really, I really should have told them what they need to hear at that point, you know. But even then I didn't, you know, I didn't seek professional help. I didn't tell anyone at work. And now talking to a lot of men about the same thing, it seems like that's what we do. You know, we mm. just, we just go through it. We don't maybe address it. We don't label it. I didn't know PTSD was a thing at the time. Or you think it's related to like war veterans and things rather than like civilian life. Do you think it's because there's this perpetuation of like boys don't cry, keep it in, man up? Do you think it's those sort of those messages from very early on? Yeah, I think it's all about that. I mean, like we know when it comes to suicide, three out of four suicides are men. And, you know, in my opinion, I don't think it's that men have way more challenges in their lives. Like we all go through different challenges, but I think the expectations that men put on themselves and those expectations are obviously to be, to be strong and to not complain, to not seek help. They are damaging. They are very damaging. And so I think that suicide, you know, statistic is related to the fact that we don't seek help. And we're actually even talking on World Suicide Prevention Day, aren't we? Yeah. Exactly. So I think a lot of us just kind of plod through. I think you're going to say it's the biggest killer of men under 45. Yeah. And we just plod through and we just hope it will get better. And for some of us, it does. For others, it doesn't. And they feel like the only option is to take their own life. So yeah, I think for me, it was definitely partly kind of that, partly just a lack of understanding of postnatal illnesses, mental health illnesses, full stop anyway. So I, I didn't even know kind of the extremity of what I was experiencing at the time, to be honest. Like I knew, I knew I wasn't right, but I don't think I fully got it at the time, probably. And so how did you support yourself then? Because if you, if you didn't reach out for, for help, how on earth did you sort of pull yourself out of that terrible hole? So talking to my wife, a lot helped. I kind of, I'm a very like busy person, a very motivated person. But for that period, especially when it was bad, like three, four months, just didn't do anything really. Like any, anything I didn't need to do, I just didn't do it. So I'll do the bare minimum at work. I took time off as well and just did the bare minimum in life. So basically keep myself alive, <laughs> basically. And, um, you know, I wasn't motivated to do anything. I couldn't really do much. I didn't have the brain capacity to, to do anything. So it was kind of real kind of, a bit like lockdown, to be honest. It was kind of back to the... <laughs> The basics, really. Yeah, I think that's what that's what it was for me. And I count myself lucky. I think for some people, their symptoms persist and get worse. To kind of gradually feel a little bit more myself, gradually start sleeping better, gradually not having so many of the flashbacks, you know, gradually being able to watch a Disney program and not burst into tears, you know. Like, <laughs> get through a David Attenborough show you know like that's a a badge of honor exactly and then basically yeah started to feel okay cool I'm coming back you know and then also my daughter like you know growing in strength and us getting on top of her allergies and that kind of helped and then life lucky I guess life didn't throw up any other major challenges you know because um 
if something else, sometimes that's what happens. People are they're ill and then life's events pile on top and you might be just about surviving and then something else comes, a bereavement or something. And then it's just, you know, so lucky in that period, there was no kind of external factors. I don't think that would have contributed negatively, you know, so yeah, I guess. And so, so when did you start writing about your experiences? Really? I only started writing recently in the book, to be honest, at the time, I think when you're going through stuff or when it's still raw, and for me, it wasn't until, so I didn't get diagnosed until like 18 months, two years afterwards. Wow. And it was kind of by accident, to be honest. I was, I had started MFF just writing about parenting and someone went to interview me and they asked about the birth. They didn't know about it, but they asked about the birth and they could see from my response. I couldn't even get through the conversation, to be honest. Like it was like talking about the birth was very raw at that time. And they were like, yeah, maybe you should talk to someone. So that's when they referred me to their friend who was a specialist in birth trauma. And we had the conversation and I told her about what I was experiencing and the birth and my, you know, how it would all played out and insomnia, all my symptoms. And she was like, yeah, it sounds like what, what you've been going through is, is PTSD. But at that, at that point, I was kind of coming out of the worst of it. But even at that point, you know, like writing, I don't think I had the desire, to be honest, to write about it. It was still so raw. Now kind of years later it's still raw but there's a there's a disconnect because it was I guess so long ago yeah you know it's, it's funny one because I'm, I'm like doing some additional work about men and mental health and there was a discussion about kind of talking to men and I was saying that I don't know duty of care whether we should talk to men who are in the thick of it I just don't know mm. first of all if they would want to and if that is responsible yeah. I don't think that's a responsible thing to do anything that could trigger those feelings I think you've got to be so careful haven't you yeah, you've got to be careful unless you're kind of, you know, you're giving them professional help. Like, I think when you're really going through it, you can't really just have that conversation. Like, mm. you know, in that first 18 months, I couldn't do this podcast and just be fine. It's so raw. You're still feeling you could lose your family. Those emotions that you felt in that room are still very much there. So you can't just have a conversation about it without it triggering you to the point where it could be quite dangerous. So yeah, I didn't have any desire to, to write about it or talk about it really. But at the same time, I guess it was it was motivating me to start MFF and build a network and talk to other dads and find out other people's experiences and whatnot. When we started writing the book in 2019, that's when I kind of said, you know what, I'm for the first time I'm actually going to write it down. Yeah. And that was a very weird experience, to be honest, writing it all down. It's very strange. And I remember writing it and my wife reading it. And it was just so emotional, you know. Yeah, that was a yeah very cathartic process. I was going to ask, did you feel a sense of relief? Mm. You know, were you able to draw a little line over that experience? Yeah, and I think there is something about writing our stories where we have like ownership over them. So they're not something that's been done to us. They're actually something that we can shape the narrative around. Yeah, very much so. And we can use it for our own, for our purpose. And it's not going to be a burden on us. Now we can use it as a, like a superpower, to be honest. Since I've done that, my life... I think my life changed before that, but since I've done that, my life has definitely changed yeah. <laughs> uh, a lot more. And am I right in thinking that the book was self-published in the end because publishers were saying, oh, there's not actually going to be that much interest in it? Yeah. Yeah. So those publishers, they were like, you know, it's funny. They loved the book. They loved the book. They loved the idea. They loved the writing. They loved me and the other dads, but they didn't think anyone else would love it. So I was like, okay, fine. <laughs> so we did a crowdfunder. We raised 12 grand in two weeks. Wow. And that was like, indication that shows there's a there's an audience there's a market for it exactly 
it got published on the 1st of June and it was for two weeks, one of the top 20 and then for a week, top 10 Amazon bestsellers when it comes to parenting books, which was just crazy. That's incredible. Yeah. And that's over and above the people who had obviously donated to the crowdfunder. So yeah. So uh, yeah, it's done amazing. It's, it's selling really well, but over and above that, you know, the conversations that I've had, have just been mind blowing, like mind blowing conversations. People have read the book and they'll say it's completely like changed the way they are thinking about their whole family setup. Like people have literally, they are in the process of redesigning their lives based on reading the book, Wow, you know, going part time or changing careers. They're just realizing that they're missing out on their children's lives reading the book I think has for a lot of dads has helped them to reassess and think about their role as dads and how important it is I guess that they are as present as possible and and you know have that gratitude for their family and so that you know and it's weird every now and again I'll read a chapter and I'll just go and kiss my daughter <laughs> you know yeah. because you read you read it and you're just like I'm so happy for what I have yeah each story is from a different dad and has a different style but Everyone is incredibly profound and it's not all negative. There's like real rays of hope and positivity. And again, it it totally challenges your perceptions of what a father is and should be. And, you know, why is it still the narrative in 2021 that women are the primary caregivers? You know, especially since the pandemic, when, you know, a lot of fathers have been working from home and doing a lot more with their children. And I love it when a dad says, I can't make this meeting because I've got school pickup or I'm spending time homeschooling with my child. I think it's such an important thing. Any time a parent can spend with their child is entirely precious. It's the golden time, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I think now we're kind of realising, I think a lot of men are realising that the traditional way of being a dad, like it's not actually that fun, to be honest. You know, that pressure of just being the main breadwinner and going to work all the time, like that's not cool. It's not enjoyable. (laughs) Like I'd rather not have that pressure, spend more time with my kids, I can still be successful at work, but you can have a more full and whole life. Yeah. And that is much more fun. And you're living, you're properly living and experiencing and not necessarily working all the time. And, you know, I remember with my husband, he would come home when Stanley, my son, was little and I would be sort of busy trying to do wind down time. And he would come in because he's an editor. So he'd come rock in about 7, 7.30 at night. And of course, it's, you know, he hadn't seen Stan all day, so he'd want to throw him up in the air. And I'm like, no, you're jazzing him up. <laughs> I'm like, don't, no. This is like lavender and, and classical music time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we've all been through that scenario. Yeah. I can definitely relate to that. And, and it would turn into DEFCON 1. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's been absolutely amazing chatting to you. I know you're a busy guy and it, it's so fascinating because I I know of you through music football fatherhood and through your presence on LinkedIn and all spoken word and and podcast stuff that you've been doing and it's incredible to hear you who I see is an incredibly productive person say that you had a time when you totally reduced to just even just surviving getting through the day was really hard and that just goes to show how you can be completely reduced and crippled by postnatal illness or post-traumatic illness i read uh, a survey the other day where they're trying to argue to change the term post-traumatic stress disorder to post-traumatic stress injury because they've actually shown in scans that there is actually damage to the brain and that it is an injury 
And by calling it injury rather than disorder, it again helps take the stigma out that it's not something, it's not through you not coping, it's through some event happening to you that you then need to recover from like a physical illness and that it has a physical format. So I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. There's so much to do around around mental health. And I think one of the reasons this podcast is so important and I love it, I think it's a great idea. I think it's a really, really good idea and well needed. You know, a podcast just focusing on this. I can imagine back then in 2015, 16, if I had had this, something to listen to, where you can understand that, you know, you're it's not just you, you can understand the wider context. Like that is so important, you know, and there's so much to do to raise general awareness just amongst like, you know, friends and family and partners and couples, but also in the workplace and workplace support, there's loads that workplaces can do. Through the NHS, you know, we work with some trusts around how they can engage men through the maternity process. And I think there's stuff there around, clearly around mental health as well. So I think there's just so much, you know, but we're heading in the right direction. There's um, a lot more research. There's Mark Williams, who's a pioneer when it comes to dad's mental health and PND. And I think he's been amazing in moving this forward, but there's so much to do. And I think from sharing my story, when I did that article on the BBC, the amount of messages I got from dads, like it took me about a week to read and respond to them all. Literally, my inbox flooded, my DMs, and it was all dads literally just kind of sending me their story pages sometimes. That's quite a responsibility. <laughs> exactly. I don't want to just reply and be like, oh, thanks. Have a good day. <laughs> I actually want to. <laughs> so I've read it and I've, I've listened to them because a lot of the time they're saying, this is the first time I've ever said these things ever wow. to anyone. Not even to their partner. Like this right here is the first time I've ever said to anyone that your story is similar to mine. They they basically write their own article. For me, it just kind of cemented that you know with new parents, it's disclaimer an amazing thing to do. It's an, it's an amazing thing to be a parent. Don't get me wrong, but at the same time, it is some of the most challenging times of your life, and we need to be more open about that. Like it's just the reality. Right. So with that, we need better support for new parents, more awareness of some of the challenges, peer support groups, professional services, content, all those sort of things that will help people get through those difficult bits. So, yeah, positive about where we're going. But at the same time, there's loads and the pandemic has added in another complication to to things as well. I do feel there's been a seismic shift in terms of talking about mental health and it being people being seen a little bit more holistically as an employee but as you say there's so much work to be done and um, you adding your voice to the mix I think has been profoundly so important for fathers clearly from that response you were talking about to the BBC article that it's these stories need to be heard and fathers need to have an outlet for their experience so how can they access music football fatherhood and all your other work yeah just go to musicfootballfatherhood.com and from there you'll see a link to our book where you can buy the book from Amazon or Waterstones or WH Smith to the lodge which is our monthly meetups for dads online to the podcast to the blog so yeah just check us out there and that's the hub and you'll find you'll find everything there but yeah connect with us there's different ways you can engage whether you want to be actively involved and come and meet people or you just want to read or listen there's different ways and there's different possibilities you know so definitely come and connect come and connect with us and the most important question sort of that remains to be asked is, uh, is your daughter into football? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, she supports three football teams. So QPR, yeah. which is my team, and Man United, which is her mum's team, and Watford, because we live five minutes from the stadium. 
What happens when they're sort of playing each other? Is it like really divided loyalties? I don't know yet, actually. I mean, QPR are like a lower league yeah, team, so yeah. we don't really have that issue. If it was three of the big teams, that might be different. But but we you know, we do a lot of work in football and and QPR were one, one of our community partners in the book, which for me personally was amazing. I was like, this is my team. They are sponsoring the book and we had the book all over their website. It was amazing. So so yeah, and Watford are a great community club as well. They do loads in with families in the community. So looking to do some work with them as it's well. It's quite incredible, isn't it? Yeah, because our, our local team's Crystal Palace and Stan, my son's a really big supporter of them. Yeah. And again, they do so many okay. things for like kids in the community. Mm. Anyway, thank you so much for your time, Elliot. It's been a, a joy to speak to you. But thanks for having me. I've enjoyed this conversation. Um, so yeah, thank you for inviting me on. I know you will have uplifted and reassured so many parents out there. So thank you very, very much for joining us today. Thank you, Vicky. If you enjoy this episode of Blue Mondays, please rate and subscribe. It only takes a minute, but it genuinely makes a difference to how many people can find it, which means helping more parents in need. Thank you.